Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, and for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amy. Morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, It's good to be back here this morning. I was in South last week. Um, I think it was the first time since sometime in 2019 anyway, uh, when, I, when I was last there. It was great to be over there just to see how God is, is building the church over there. There's so many new faces, people I didn't recognize, um, which was real encouragement um, just to see that. So, um, but good to be back with you this morning um, in East here. Uh, let me pray for us uh, just before we get into our passage here in Hebrews 12. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and breathing and active. We thank you that you speak to us even this morning as we hear your word being uh, spoken, as we hear your word proclaimed to us. Lord, I pray that um, this morning as we look at this passage, you will challenge us. There will be conviction, Lord. I pray there will be encouragement as well. Encouragement to, to look to Jesus as uh, our great uh, saviour, the great solution to the, to the problem that we all have. Um, Jesus is who we all need most in life, to know him as our saviour and Lord. And I pray, Lord, this morning that our eyes would be fixed on him. So I pray these things in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want you um, to imagine... You've maybe seen this on TV, um, but imagine you've got uh, a politician, a world leader, a state governor in America perhaps, who's there on the screen, they're in a press conference, and they're there warning their people of a storm, a storm that's coming their way. 
Maybe in America, it might be something like a massive hurricane or a tornado. But it's certainly a storm that will just consume everything in its path and leave a trail of destruction. You can maybe see the person there in your mind's eye, standing before their people. They've got a a serious demeanor. They're calm, but there's a, a gravity to what they're saying, a seriousness in their tone. Because they're urging the people that they care about, the people that they really do care for, to heed their warning, to listen to what they have to say, to seek shelter from the storm that's coming. The desire of this person on the screen is to preserve life. They want to protect their people. And so they want their people to hear the warning because there are consequences, dire consequences, if they don't. But they also are there encouraging their people, wanting them to know that if they do seek refuge, they will make it through that storm. And they will come out the other side. That's the picture that's conjured up in my mind here as we read these words in Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. This is the last of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And the writer here is speaking to the people in Hebrews who he cares so much for to warn them of what's ahead. A storm like no other. But he's encouraging them to find refuge and shelter in the one place, the only place that it can be found. And that's in Jesus Christ. He's imploring these people to heed his warning. To not throw away what they have in Jesus, which is what many of them were tempted to do. To not shrink back in their faith, even if the life that they're having to live right now on earth is tough in following him even if they're losing things because of their faith in him. He's telling them, don't go back to the old covenant ways of your past in Judaism because the consequences of throwing away what you have in Jesus, they're dire, they're catastrophic. He wants to encourage these Jewish Christians one last time to keep going, to keep pressing on to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus as they run this race of faith, knowing with full assurance, with full confidence that there is great blessings. Not just in the future, but great blessings for them now in following Jesus. And knowing that when God does come in final judgment, which is promised here, which is promised throughout the Bible, when he does come in that final storm. They will make it through if they keep their trust in Jesus. They will make it through and they will come out the other side in glory, everlasting glory. I want to level with you this morning. This is a hard passage. It might be a tough one to listen to in some ways. The writer, he doesn't pull any punches here. He is giving the most sobering of warnings to those who are thinking of walking away from Jesus. 
renouncing their faith in him. And it might be painful and it might stir up emotions within us as we think of people in our lives who have done this or who are doing this right now. But I want you to remember why the writer is saying this and why, as we believe, this is, this is God's word. It's, it's, it's inspired by God. It's spoken by him, written down by this Jewish preacher. And the love that he has for these people is a love that God has for them too. He's calling them to see that there is a way for them to be protected and sheltered from this storm. If I could summarize what he's saying in this passage, here's what I'd say this morning. What we receive in the new covenant and in Jesus Christ brings far greater blessings than anything experienced in the old covenant. But with that, with greater blessings, comes greater accountability. Greater blessings means greater accountability. Therefore, we must not refuse Jesus and his word. That's what he says in verse 25 of our passage today. Don't throw away what you've been given in Jesus or the consequences will be dire. But rather live a life of thanksgiving and worship to God. That's what he's saying in this passage this morning. And I just want to look at it with you in two parts. The first part is going to be this, the greater blessings of the new covenant. And the second part is the greater accountability with the new covenant. So the greater blessings of the new covenant, firstly, and the greater accountability with the new covenant, secondly. So let's look firstly at the greater blessings of the new covenant. And that's what he's talking about in verses 18 to 24. And he says, what you've received now in the new covenant in Jesus is so much better than what the children of Israel had in the old covenant with Moses. Where you've come to now in Jesus is so much greater than what you're tempted to go back to there in the old covenant. Now notice the word at the start of verse 18, for. This links us back to what he's been saying already. So this is the reason why we press on in this race, even if it's tough. This is why we accept rather than despise God's discipline in our lives. This is why we can strengthen our tired hands and weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. Because through Jesus and the new covenant, the blessings we've received are far, far better. And he shows us this by contrasting two mountains in our passage here. Verse 18 and verse 22, we see it. Verse 18, he says, for you have not come to what could be touched. Now we're gonna see he's talking about a physical mountain. That's Mount Sinai, which is talked about in the Old Testament. We're gonna look at that together. And then in verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. So basically he's saying, in Jesus and the new covenant, your home address isn't Mount Sinai, it's Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the neighborhood you want to be in. Trust me. Coming to Mount Zion is so much better than Mount Sinai. And in order to understand why, we need to grasp what these two mountains represent. So Mount Sinai that we see in Exodus 19 that we're going to look at in a moment, it was the physical mountain that Moses climbed to receive God's law on behalf of the children of Israel. So Mount Sinai, it represents the old covenant and the law. 
And Mount Zion, we're going to see, is the city of the living God. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. So it represents where believers have come to now in Jesus and the new covenant. It represents the gospel of grace. The old covenant and the law with Mount Sinai. The gospel of grace with Mount Zion. And we see in verses 18 to 24, these two mountains couldn't be any different. Come with me in your Bible to Exodus 19. Keep your finger in Hebrews 12 as well, because I want us to see the scene at Mount Sinai and see how the the giving of the law actually unfolds. And I want us to see at Mount Sinai, it was a place of terror and fear for the children of Israel. It was a terrifying thing for sinful men and women to stand in the presence of this holy and mighty and majestic God. Look as well at how unapproachable and impersonal God is at Mount Sinai. Look at Exodus 19, verse 12 and 13. The Lord tells Moses to warn the people of Israel not to go up to Mount Sinai or to even touch the mountain or they would die. They were even told that if an innocent animal so much as touched the mountain when God was present on it, they were to stone that animal to death. That's what he's talking about in verse 20 of Hebrews 12. We get this picture of all this red tape around Mount Sinai, Sinai, Mount Sinai sorry. all these danger signs at the foot of Mount Sinai, warning the people, you cannot get too close, do not draw near. Because if you so much as touch this mountain when God is present on it, you will die. The punishment is severe. And look at verses 16 to 19 of Exodus 19. When the Lord was present on the mountain, it was consumed by thick smoke. There were earthquakes, thunder and lightning, a very loud trumpet blast that grew louder and louder with every blow. This is what the writer's reminding his listeners of in verse 18 of Hebrews 12. It's a terrifying scene, a frightening experience. Sinful men and women quake in their boots as they witness God's incomparable power, his matchless glory, his sheer holiness. The writer even says that Moses, the great patriarch of Jewish history, he was trembling with fear at what he saw. See, this isn't a God to take lightly. This isn't a God to be casual or nonchalant around. This is a God who is glorious, who is awesome, who leaves people awestruck, filled with fear, reverent fear as they stand in the presence of his holiness. And I think in many ways, we can lose this sense of awe and wonder in our day and age when we think of God and our experience of him. We domesticate God. We tame him. We bring him down to a level we can handle and are more comfortable with. But this isn't the picture we get here. This is a God who is beyond comparison. No wonder people in the Old Testament, when they came into God's presence, their first response was to fall on their face before him because he is an awesome and a holy God. And turn over to Exodus 20 for a moment. I want you to see the response of the people when God himself speaks to them. 
Now, I don't know who you think of whenever you think of a, a person who's got a commanding voice, a bellowing voice maybe. A person who, when they speak, everyone in the room just sits up and listens. It's my old primary school principal, Mr. McElrath. That's who does it for me. He didn't raise his voice often, but when he did, you listened. Look at the gathered people of Israel. Now, this is thousands upon thousands of them. The gathered people of Israel hearing the unfiltered voice of God. Look how they respond in Exodus 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And Moses said, you, and, and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has, has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people were already standing at a distance from God and so terrified were they when they heard his voice that they moved further away from him. They hear God's voice and they beg Moses, Moses, please never let God speak to us again. So terrified were they to hear God's voice. This was the mountain to which the people of Israel had come to. This is how they related to God in the old covenant. And the writer of the Hebrews says... And this is what you would rather have. This is what you would rather go back to. The terrors of Mount Sinai. Do you understand how terrifying a thing it is for sinful men and women to be in the presence of a holy God? Do you get just how unapproachable God is in our sinful state? Because God does not take sin lightly. Let's make no mistakes about this. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that our sin isn't that bad or that God doesn't really care about it. That he's just going to sweep our sin under the rug and forget all about it. No. As the writer has already said in Hebrews chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if the law and the old covenant is all we have, then we have a reason to be fearful just like the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai. Because all the law does is lay our sinfulness bare, reveal how sinful we really are. All the law does is show us that we are completely incapable of keeping God's law. And because of that, we are condemned as guilty before him. But look at the encouragement of verse 22. The writer says to these people, but this isn't where you have come to. This isn't your home address. Your home address through Jesus and the new covenant is Mount Zion. And the picture of this mountain couldn't be any different. Where there was terror and there was fear at Mount Sinai, there is joy and there's blessing and there's celebration at Mount Zion. Where Sinai showed God's inaccessibility to sinners, Zion represents the full access that we have through Jesus Christ in the new covenant. And where Sinai was impersonal, a God who was far off, Zion shows a God who draws his people near. It's a beautiful picture. 
There are lots of times in the Old Testament where Mount Zion is mentioned, over 150 times. And it's used in lots of different ways, sometimes as the city of Jerusalem, sometimes as the temple, sometimes when it's speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole. If you want to find out more about Mount Zion and how it's used in the Old Testament, go to Got Questions and type in Mount Zion. It gives a brilliant overview of it. But what all of the things in the Old Testament have in common when they're talking about Mount Zion is that Mount Zion is the place where God dwells with his people. It's where God dwells with his people. And in the New Testament, Zion refers to God's spiritual kingdom. So the spiritual city of Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what the writer's talking about here. Because look at verse 22. Here's what he says. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the heavenly city that Abraham and all those other faithful men and women of Hebrews 11 were looking to by faith. And look who's in this heavenly city. This is brilliant. Verse 22, innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is angels enjoying the party of all parties. I love a good party. Don't know if anybody else does. We've been missing parties for a while. I'm longing for a good wedding party or something like that. But think of the best party you've been at. This party tops it no end. Many, many times over. Thousands upon thousands of angels filling the dance floor, celebrating and worshiping the Lord forever. What a picture. And verse 23, we are there with them. The church, we are the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. God's chosen people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that he has gathered to himself, joining these angels in celebration before the Lord forever. And here's the amazing thing about being called the assembly of the firstborn. There's usually only one firstborn in the family. And they're the one who, by being the firstborn, receive the blessings and the privileges and the inheritance of that status as the firstborn. But this is an assembly of the firstborn. Every single one of us who belong in this heavenly city are afforded and the honor and the blessings and the privileges of the firstborn son, Jesus Christ. In him, we are considered firstborn sons and daughters, meaning that everything Jesus deserves, everything that is due to him is given to us as well. What an incredible encouragement, especially for these Jewish Christians, because they were losing so much in this life. In earthly ways, their property was being plundered. Their reputation was being dragged through the mud. They were losing many, many things. But the writer says, in Jesus, you have got everything. You lack nothing. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're in Jesus this morning, you have everything. Everything you could ever need, want, or ask for. So why would you ever be like Esau? Like the, what the writer says in verses 16 and 17, and throw it all away. Why would you ever just give up that inheritance for earthly things, for the here and for the now? Don't throw it all away. And don't gloss over verse 23 in the end of it, because if you're a believer this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, 
then the writer says that your name is enrolled in heaven today. Your name is in that heavenly register, the Lamb's book of life, never to be rubbed out, never to be tip-exed over, never to be forgotten about. It's there forever, written with the blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ. This isn't like when I was younger and you were being picked for the football team and you were wondering, is my name going to be read out? Worrying if the coach has forgotten about me. Worrying if I've done enough to impress him. No. Our acceptance of Jesus and his word is what guarantees our citizenship in this heavenly city. That's it. If you've trusted in Jesus, you can be absolutely sure this morning that when Jesus comes in glory and when he calls his people to himself, that your name will be read out. So we keep going. We press on in this race to take hold of what is ours, living by faith in our eternal future, eternally secure today. But we're not done yet. As good as that is, look at verse 23 and 24. Because at Mount Zion, we've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. How different is this to Mount Sinai? No longer is our access to God restricted. No longer do we have to tremble in fear in the presence of this judge of all. Because through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, God declares us righteous. He is the only judge that really matters in the end. And the gavel comes down when he looks at us who've been made perfect in Jesus and he says, you are righteous. And that's where he finishes in verse 24. Because we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You haven't come to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, the one who trembled in fear at Mount Sinai in the presence of God like the rest of the people. No, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant, our perfect representative before God, our perfect high priest, seated at the right hand of God in heaven right now, the one who offered the perfect sacrifice of his own blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember Abel? He was killed by his brother Cain, the first murder in the Bible in the book of Genesis, and his blood spilled out in the ground, and it cried out to God, vengeance, judgment, But as Jesus' blood spilled out at the cross of Calvary, it didn't cry for vengeance. No, it cried mercy. Father, have mercy. Forgive them. Pardon them. His blood speaks a far better word because his blood ushers in the innumerable blessings of this new covenant. His blood is based on the complete forgiveness of sins forever. Remember this. Remember the words of Jeremiah 31, the blessings of the new covenant between us and God that we enter into through Jesus Christ. I'm only going to read the last line, but it's incredible what Jesus has secured for us. God says these words when he looks at Jesus and his sacrifice, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. God is a forgiving and a forgetting God. 
And if you're a believer this morning, you've not come to Mount Sinai. Sinai isn't how you relate to God. You've not come to the law which only condemns us and reminds us of our sinfulness. It only reminds us how completely deserving we are of God's judgment. A fearful and a terrifying prospect. No, we've come to Mount Zion. The place of a new and better covenant in Jesus Christ. Where God's grace and his mercy overflow. Where Jesus' shed blood offers forgiveness, pardon, acceptance to all who put their trust in him. The blessings of Mount Zion are endless. They are so much better than anything this world could offer us. They are worth living for and they are worth dying for. They are worth suffering for. They are worth forsaking things in this life for. They are worth telling others about. But here's what the writer says, secondly. Because with greater blessings comes greater accountability. There is greater accountability in the new covenant. Look at verse 25. This is a stern and sobering warning for those tempted to walk away from Jesus, for those tempted to throw away their eternal blessings for the easier, more comfortable life right now, just like Esau. Remember who the writer is speaking to? He's speaking to those who are wavering, who are looking over their shoulder and tempted to walk away, thinking surely there must be something better than Jesus. But Here's what the writer says in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not refuse Jesus. For if they, that's the children of Israel, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Remember the children of Israel? Remember what happened to them? He's talked about this already in chapters 3 to 6. Of Hebrews. The children of Israel had this frightening experience of the holiness and the power and the majesty of God at Mount Sinai, and yet they still rejected him. They hardened their hearts. They became dull of hearing. They continually broke their covenant promises with God, disobeyed him time and time again, were unfaithful to him with other gods, and in the end, they experienced God's judgment. They didn't enter the land that God had promised them and they died in the wilderness wandering around for 40 years. And the writer says, if that's the judgment they received for rejecting God's word on earth, how much worse will it be for us if we reject him who warns from heaven? How much worse for those who reject Jesus who warns from heaven? Remember his warning in chapter 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The writer is saying to these flagging Christians, if you think the experience of your forefathers at Sinai sounds awesome and terrifying and fearful, you have not seen anything yet. Because verse 26, at that time, at Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth and the people begged Moses to never let them hear God's voice again. But now, now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things which have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The writer is quoting Haggai 2 here. And he's speaking of a time when God will come in final judgment to restore all things, to perfectly dwell with his people. And this time when God comes, it isn't going to be an earthquake. It's going to be a universe quake. The heavens and the earth and the sea and all the dry land will be shaken this time. And only the things which have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will stand. Everything else will be shaken to the point of obliteration. You've maybe seen on TV before, on the news, the destruction that's caused when an earthquake strikes. Buildings reduced to rubble. Cities lying in ruins. But this speaks of a time when God will shake the whole universe and the heavens so violently that everything will be broken into millions and millions of pieces. Everything created reduced to dust, blown away in the wind. And the only thing left standing will be God's eternal kingdom and God's eternal people. Listen, God's judgment is never a nice thing to talk about or to consider. And if this is your first time coming along to church in village this morning, please hear me. We do not always speak in these ways. But here at Village, we want to preach the whole counsel of God. This is why when we preach through books of the Bible like this, we don't just gloss over hard passages like this because we know that it matters. We all, me included in this, we need to hear and to heed passages like this because the God who never lies... He promises that there is a time when King Jesus will leave his throne in heaven and he will come back to this earth. And he won't come this time as a baby in a lowly stable. No, he's going to come this time as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's going to be riding on a white horse, a two-edged sword in his mouth, coming to judge the living and the dead. And that is a fearful and a terrifying prospect for anyone who stands guilty before God which is me without Jesus. It's me without a savior in Jesus. And it's you without Jesus too. Without Jesus, the honest truth is that I deserve God's judgment. I deserve to experience his wrath for the sins in my heart and the sin which shows itself in my life. And so do you. But this is what makes the gospel such incredible life-changing news for us. This is why we must hear and understand the bad news in order to understand how good the good news really is. Because even though I, I stand before God and you stand before God as guilty and condemned, God is merciful and forgiving. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all of us to turn to him in repentance and faith, to trust in him. 
Because in his love and in his grace, he offers us the way to be safe from the storm of his coming judgment. He's offered us his only son, Jesus, to stand in our place, to bear the wrath of God's judgment against sin for us. Jesus Christ, the innocent son of God, he took the punishment I deserve. He became sin for me. He became unrighteous for me so that I can be forgiven and made righteous in him. He experienced separation from God his Father so that I don't have to and so that you don't have to either. This is the grace and the mercy and the love that is shown in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in light of this incredible news that the writer says in verse 28 and 29, Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Here is the only fitting way to respond to this good news this morning. It's worship. It's thankfulness. It's awe and reverence before God because we have received what we do not deserve. We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So how could our response be anything other than worship to God? There's a famous line in all of the James Bond films where when he orders his staple drink, a vodka martini, he says the words, shaken, not stirred. Well, the writer in Hebrews 12 is serving us up the very opposite this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, he wants you to know that you will never be shaken, but he wants you to be stirred this morning, stirred up to love and good works as he's called us to in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Not shaken, but stirred to offer worship, acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. As Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, in view of God's great mercy, in view of all that God has done for us in his son Jesus Christ, in redeeming us through him, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We offer all of ourselves, every ounce of who we are, all of the time to him, to worship him, to glorify him. That is our true and proper worship. Praising him with our lips, glorifying him by living lives of obedience to him and his word. Thanking him every day when we wake up for the grace and the mercy that he has shown to us. Serving him with a joyful and a glad heart because he alone is worthy of our highest praise. Worship is never a matter of willpower. It's not. We never conjure up worship in and of ourselves. No, Worship is about wonder, not willpower, but wonder. A heart that is captivated by the awesomeness of God, knowing that God is a consuming fire, that he is not to be messed with, not to be taken lightly, but yet in Jesus, we will not be consumed by the fire. Because in Jesus, we have received the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God that will stand forever. If you're not someone who's put their trust in Jesus this morning, I want to ask you, how will you respond to this final warning this morning? 
The gospel of Jesus demands a response. The gospel is an ultimatum in many ways. We cannot sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus Christ. The famous theologian R.C. Sproul, he says this line, it's stuck with me ever since I heard it. Right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. Who you trust, what you believe, how you live right now counts forever. And if you've not trusted in Jesus, well, God is offering salvation to you today. He's offering you safety and refuge from the storm of his coming judgment against sin. He is patient. He is gracious. But his patience is there to offer us the way to repent and to come back to him. The writer is honest and upfront with him. Either we accept Jesus and his word and receive the eternal blessings of the new covenant or we reject Jesus and we face eternal separation from God forever. I don't know if you've ever stood in the face of a fire that's out of control, a fire that is consuming everything in its path. I was brought up on a farm, and when I was 17, I'll never forget it, Easter Monday, a really sunny and windy day, someone lit a fire in our hay shed, and almost instantly on that windy day, there was a raging inferno. And I remember my dad just running towards the house, terror on his face. You could see it in the whites of his eyes crying out to my mom to call 999 to get the fire brigade. He shouted to me to get a hose to run to the fire to try and do whatever I could. And I remember picking up this hose, just like a garden hose, running with it to the entrance to this hay shed. And as I got there, thank goodness that the hose wasn't long enough because I just stood in front of this fire thinking, what on earth could I do? There is nothing I can do in the face of this blazing inferno. Out of control. It took three fire engines to put out that blaze that day. And all the fire engines on the planet won't be enough to put out the inferno when God comes in final judgment. The consuming fire. If we run from him, we will never escape. We will never be safe from the storm. But if we run to Jesus, he is our refuge. He is our salvation. He is our only hope in life. So will you put your trust in Jesus today? There is nothing more pressing. Come to Jesus today. Put your trust in him for salvation and know the eternal blessings and the eternal security of being in him forever. Let me pray. Father God, we realize after we 
read a passage like this that you are so far above us. You are so awesome and glorious and majestic and powerful. Lord, we realize that there are many times and and many ways that we look at you and, and view you in the wrong way. We tame you. We empty you or try to empty you of your glory. Lord, we're sorry for when we do that because a passage like this reminds us of how incredible and awesome you are. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word to warn us, to admonish us, to encourage us, to find shelter in Jesus, the only place that it can be found. Lord, we know that we are deserving of your righteous wrath against sin. We deserve it. We know that in many ways we have, uh, even today, Lord, sinned against you in our hearts, in our thoughts, in the things that we have done, the things that we have left undone. Lord, there are so many ways that we failed you, but yet you are merciful, you are kind, you are gracious to us. Lord, I pray that each of us would come to Jesus this morning. If we're a Christian, that we would come back to the foot of the cross and see your grace and your mercy poured out for us there in Jesus Christ. That we would worship you this morning. We would praise you with awe and reverence because you're our God. Through Jesus, you're our Father. We are righteous and accepted before you. We are right to be in your presence because of Jesus. And that is an amazing thing. And Lord, if we have not yet put our trust in Jesus, I pray that today we would see the seriousness in this, Lord, that we would not put it off any longer. That we would know that no decision in our minds, Lord, is one that is rejecting Jesus. We must accept Jesus and his word. And if we do, there is great reward. There are eternal blessings that are innumerable, far greater than anything else this world might offer to us. So Lord, I pray that if there are any this morning who have not yet put their trust in Jesus, they would confess their sins, they would turn to you, ask for forgiveness today, and they would know your love, your grace, They would know salvation in Jesus. I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.